You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season three, episode two, Urban Monks and Part-Time Hermits. I've always been drawn to the monastic life, but my desire for being an artist working in the world kept me early on from pursuing this fascination too closely. But recently, I came across an author who has drawn connections between the monastery and the life of the artist in ways which complement both paths. My guest today is Christine Walters Paintner. Christine is a spiritual director and Benedictine oblate living in Galway, Ireland. She's written a book titled The Artist's Rule, Nurturing Your Creative Soul with Monastic Wisdom. I had the opportunity to speak with Christine about her book and her way of life as an artist and an urban monk. She explained to me how the practices of Benedictine spirituality can serve to enrich the life of the working artist and provide tools for those seeking to deepen their creative and spiritual journey. This is my conversation with spiritual director Christine Walters Paintner, urban monks and part-time hermits. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics. I'm excited to have you on the show, and I look forward to unpacking some of the ideas that you've written about in your book. Thanks, Stephen. I'm really excited about it, too. Well, I think I mentioned it to you earlier, but your book, The Artist's Rule, has become somewhat of a phenomenon in our community. Um, I had it recommended to me by several friends, and I think the ideas in your book are really powerful for anyone looking to live those intersections between art and faith. But before we get into the book, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and maybe where we can connect with your work? Sure. Well, my husband and I have a website that we call a virtual monastery called Abbey of the Arts. And we started it about maybe 12 years ago as a blog, and it just sort of developed from there. Um, at the time, we were living in the States, but now we live in Ireland, sort of following a, a little pilgrimage thread of our own. And my background, I actually did a PhD in Christian spirituality, thinking that I was going to go on and be an academic and um, live that life. And I, I did for a little while, and I found it a bit stifling because my real love was really working with spiritual practice and working with individuals and communities, particularly like as as spirituality really impacted their lives <laughs> and in sort of that way. And then bringing in the, my love has always been for the creative arts as well and how those two intersect. So I'm also a Benedictine oblate, which means that I'm a lay person who's made a commitment to live out the Benedictine way of life in my everyday life. So mm. that that impacts, I'd say the three main threads of our work of the impact is the Benedictine monastic tradition, the desert monks, and then the Celtic monastic tradition mm. in Ireland in particular. So it's a rich tapestry from which to <laughs> weave possibilities. Of- <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love that. Tell me a little bit about the Abbey of the Arts. How does an online monastery function? 
It's kind of a combination of online presence as well as we do have some live programs, retreats, and, and actually pilgrimage experiences in Ireland. Um, but we have uh, we have a Facebook group that's free to join called The Holy Disorder of Dancing Monks. I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that actually came up on a retreat several years ago, and one of the participants was like, we're not a religious order, we're a disorder. And I was like, yes, that's it. <laughs> so, so people can join there and have conversation. There's a free online course about being a monk in the world. There's a lot of other online retreats that are offered throughout the year, which people join in and they find community there. In fact, just after I talk to you, I'm gonna we're leading um, an online retreat based on this book right now, and I do a webinar every other week for that. And so I meet people live and talk about the book as it's going on and their experience. And then they have a, a forum to share in, and we have some wonderful helper monks, as we call mm-hmm. them, who help respond and support people and, and all of that. So yeah. there's actually kind of a rich sense of community, I'd say, even though a lot of it is virtual. Yeah. Wow. That's really, really amazing. I love that. I, I think I read on your website that uh, you would call yourself an urban monk and a part-time hermit. And I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say the hermit part of me is definitely wanting uh, a lot more attention these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. The book is a 12-week journey that goes through Benedictine practices and how these connect to the life of an artist. And I know for me, I found them the ideas here to be super enriching, and they put language and structure to a lot of practices that I had been aspiring toward in my own life. Tell us a little bit about how the book works and how the reader can interact with this journey. Sure. Well, each chapter sort of revolves around a different theme. Um, For instance, in the third week, you explore sacred tools and sacred space, kind of around the idea that Benedict talks about how all the implements of the monastery are as sacred as the vessels of the altar. And so he talks about how even like the kitchen implements are just as sacred. And so we sort of talk about what does it mean, you know, as an artist to consider all of the tools that you use, whether the pen or the computer you write on or the paint brushes you use as holy and what happens, how does your intention around your art making shift if you write a blessing and have a little bit of ritual around that practice. The chapter that follows is around sacred rhythms for creative renewal. And one of the practices of the monastic tradition that I've always loved is praying the hours, particularly as a way of being really conscious and aware of the rise and fall of our own rhythms and, you know, both through the day as well as a sort of modeled throughout the year. So like the hour of dusk is very similar to the season of autumn we're in right now in Northern Hemisphere. And I'd say that our culture is a very much like a spring and summer kind of dawn and dawn and um, midday sort of energy like it's all about production and blossoming and flowering forth and all of that wonderful stuff and yet I find a lot of the monastic practice is more has more kinship with autumn and winter and those seasons of letting go and fallowness and incubation and for me as an artist I find that that's really essential to honor those aspects of the creative process as well so that I'm not always expecting myself to be producing constantly and that some of those fallow periods are just as essential to the creative rhythm mm-hmm. as the rest of it as the flower you know all the exciting parts <laughs> yeah yeah wow well i know one thing the book offers at the end of each chapter 
are these contemplative exercises which you invite the reader to participate in. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how these practices inform your creative work as a writer, and then also how these practices can shape the creative work or the creative mindset of those reading the book. Yeah, well, one of the practices that we use in all of the chapters is Lexio Divina, which is the practice of sacred reading. And it's a very slow, meditative way of reading the scriptures or really any sacred text. And it's something I draw on a lot as a writer, uh, and particularly for writing poetry. Um, so in Lexio, you take a little, you take a, just a short piece of text, and you slow yourself way, way down, and you open. Benedict talks about listening with the ears of your heart, which is very different than listening with your mind, which wants to kind of analyze and judge and make plans and uh-huh. sort of. The heart is more that receiving, intuitive place. And then listen for a word or phrase. I, I use the word shimmers, but something that kind of calls to you for a little more exploration and resting into. So in the monastic tradition, it's kind of this image of like chewing on a text. They use the image of like cows chewing their mm. cud. Mm-hmm. And I love that sense of like working with a word that sparks your imagination mm. and letting it like digest and become integrated into you and then out of that you listen sort of you let kind of your imagination wander and then you listen for an invitation for me a lot of the creative moment at least the expressive moment i should say kind of comes in that time of listening for what the invitation is Contemplative practice is almost a countercultural way of living, and maybe that's where the urban monk comes in. But um, do you find that people that come to your online community and that engage these practices with you have a bit of a time of detoxing from the way that we live our busy lives before they can actually get into this way? Yeah, I'd say that, I mean, it varies with each person. I'd say that all of us who are engaging with these have an ongoing challenge with sort of the busyness and the demands of life. And and that's why we practice. And one of the things I love about the monastic way is it's very much about kind of that idea of beginner's mind that you find in Buddhism. Benedict talks about always being a beginner. And then there's the vow of conversion in the Benedictine practice, which is kind of this commitment to never feel like I have it all figured out Mm -hmm. and to realize I'm always on a journey and to realize that those moments, you know, when I do feel kind of humbled by my own, you know, whether it's working on what I want to have as a Sabbath day or, you know, finding myself like reacting not so (laughs) monk-like <laughs> someone, someone who annoys me, which does happen occasionally. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, it's not about perfection. It really is about continuing to show up. And that's why I think having a community is really important so that we can support one another and remind each other, like, oh, you haven't failed as a human being. You're, you're being human. Right. Well, I know one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is community and the importance of having community. And I know, at least for me as an artist, that's been a major part of the journey because we can tend to isolate or 
have a difficult time finding community which embraces or understands some of the creative sensibilities of the artist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how the Benedictine community has nurtured this within you and just some of your thoughts on how community impacts the artist. Well, I'd say for me, there's lots of layers of community in my life. My Benedictine community is not as I, I is back in near Seattle, so I don't actually get to see them that often. But I do am in email contact with my oblate mentor, and when I when I was together with them, we would meet, you know, every month or a couple times a month, and probably at Lexio together, and really talk about kind of the challenges of living living in the everyday world, and how does Benedict help us to kind of address that uh, in creative ways. And so, in, I'd say in my life now, part of my community is the online world. Part of it is, for instance, having a spiritual director who helps me kind of stay accountable to practice. Some of it is my, you know, the poetry workshop that I go to, you know, isn't like an explicitly, quote unquote, spiritual community. And yet, a lot of what we do there is kind of not even explicitly monastic, but talking about the creative life and how, um, you know, what does it mean? I, I guess for me, like writing a poem is in some ways a little bit of a reflection of the monastic life in terms of getting language down to its essence and trying to simplify. And for me, in part, the monastic way of being is seeing the divine in all moments, which is a lot easier said than done. But, you know, when I talk about being an urban monk, it means for me that living in the city doesn't, it's not like something I have to somehow overcome to be it to be monastic or contemplative, it actually means that I try and cultivate a way of seeing that actually sees the sacred woven into my interactions with people in the world. And that's also part of my community. Mm-hmm. And then, so then my art is, for me, like the poetry in particular is really about lifting up those moments of grace and beauty in the midst of ordinary events of daily life. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that, that a lot of that comes out of my own commitment to contemplative practice. Well, for some of the people listening that may not know what Benedictine spirituality is, how would you describe that to them? I'd say that it's kind of a very um, gentle, sort of ordered way of living in that it's a a set of practices. And I talk sometimes about how Benedict was really committed to seeing the sacred in all things in all people and all time. And so the things I already sort of mentioned in terms of the sacredness of all the tools of the monastery, not just the tools of the altar, and, and I apply that to, you know, all the things of my life. In terms of people, he talks about seeing the face of Christ in the stranger. Mm. In fact, in the Benedictine way, the person that makes us the most uncomfortable, that makes us feel sort of the most strange is actually the one who has the most capacity to reveal a face of God to us. Mm. And then the sacredness of time, I mentioned a little bit with the sacred rhythms, you know, attuning ourselves to the rise and fall of the day and Mm -hmm. letting that inform us rather than trying to resist and push through and live this way of life that's so... So destructive to our own natural rhythms and, mm. and creative expression. 
Wow, no, that's so good. I think I'm going to move to Galway and, and join us. <laughs> You'd be most welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, one thing that I read on your website as well is that you hold a commitment to radical justice. And I know that one thing that has fueled my own creative pursuits in the past couple of years is just exploring the relationship between beauty and justice. And in fact, I did an earlier episode on Makers and Mystics that explored the relationship between beauty and justice. And, you know, I think sometimes, especially in the world that we're living in right now where, you know, it just seems like every day we're faced with another crisis, another crazy situation. It's like, what is the role of the artist in the midst of this? And and how do we as artists and, and creators, as well as spiritual practitioners, like what is our role in this? And so I'm curious when you say you, you hold a commitment to radical justice, what does that mean for you as an artist? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is, well, certainly that line from Dostoevsky about beauty will save the world, because mm-hmm. um, I know that it's certainly saved my own <laughs> life and many times just in, in the sense of, I guess, part of my commitment as an, an artist is to hold the tension between a world that is both full of terrible, horrible heartbreaking, sorrowful, tragic things that happen every day. And the, also the really, the vibrant reality that life is also full of tremendous grace and beauty and moments of outpouring of love and, and all of that. And so I think for me as an artist, it's important to hold that tension and not fall into the cynicism that where it disregards the, really the impact of beauty um, but also not ter- falls into like a Pollyanna mode where life is all beauty all the time, because obviously that's not true. Um, I was listening actually to a podcast from uh, Michael Mead the other day. He's a storyteller and mythologist in the Northwest, and I, I l- love his perspective, actually. And he he was talking about how we're really called to be these co-creators of beauty and love and justice in the world, and and that we're, we're each called to bring a a unique offering in that regard you know like it's planted in us by the divine at birth and so part of our roles as artists is essentially to kind of remind people of like hope and and love and you know that love sort of does have the final say yeah that's so good i love i love what you said about not falling into cynicism there seems to be such a, a temptation for our generation just to fall into cynicism yeah it's i find it you know it's all over the the media and the papers i think it's actually actually actively trying to cultivate cynicism because it's so disempowering for people mm-hmm. and, and so i think these practices monastic practices help us remind us you know of what is actually there present in the world at work that we can help bring forth through art and through relationship and through hospitality and mm-hmm. all of those things mm-hmm. yeah well i love the focus on hospitality in your book In fact, you even used the phrase radical hospitality as part of your practices. And I've often thought, you know, we call it a creative gift. And when we use that phrase, we most of the time are referring to he or she as possessing this gift. But I began to think of it in a different way, like the creative gift, it's a gift meant to be given. 
And in this way, it seems that art is generous by nature. It's like we create these things to be given, to be shared, to be interacted with. And so I'm curious if that was some of your thought, even in your inclusion of hospitality in your creativity. Mm, that's a really great question. I think for me, there's there's definitely at the heart of hospitality is a sense of generosity. But it's for me, it's a lot about meeting the other and recognizing, again, like that divine spark in the other as well. And how in the encounter with with the strangeness and the otherness is actually where I get broken open from my own patterns of, um, you know, habit and the ways of seeing that keep me kind of limited in my life. And so in that encounter with the other, it actually helps to kind of set me free as well to for that whole it's kind of like a circle of generosity if that makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely that's good that's good you talked about writing a blessing for beginning your creative work. And you kind of pull from the Jewish tradition where they have blessings for most of the activities of the day, you know, a way to, to consecrate each action. And um, I, I've actually done that. I actually put that into practice in my own life of, of writing a blessing to begin each creative work. But I, I'd love for you to tell us some about that. Yeah, blessing. Blessing's kind of an interesting act in that it it's acknowledging what's already there. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of acknowledging the grace that's already existent. Yes. And but it's sort of that giving that act of awareness is what lifts it up and then you know allows it kind of into our lives. And when I lived in Seattle, I had a very dear friend who was um, a rabbi, and she would often invite us over for Sabbath dinners and Passover and all of that, and love to witness the way in which that imagination like sanctifies everything. And really, you know, it really is. It, it has so much kinship to the monastic tradition. This idea of blessing. Everything is a blessing, and everything calls upon us to bless it as a way of acknowledging its sacredness already. And live, you know, moving to Ireland, I've discovered that that's actually a significant part of the the Celtic tradition. Also, is this act of um, blessing for the journeys, blessing for waking, blessing for you know, blessing for all these different kind of moments of our lives. They're sort of like a naming and a lifting up <laughs> of, mm -hmm. of what's of what's already there. Yeah, it's just a way to kind of put us in tune with with the blessing and the grace, like you said, that's already there. I love that. So it's the blessing is almost more about helping us become more aware of of what's already available to us. Then, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I'd say as artists, you know, sometimes we might approach our work and feel burned out or we feel like uninspired or blocked or whatever those messages are. And I, I think it's a way of reminding us of where that inspiration actually comes from and um, yeah, really honoring again those sacred rhythms in our lives, and and also those moments when we come to our art and it's feeling like it's really flowing, you know, of, again of of really acknowledging that force that we're cooperating with that infuses the work. One thing that I've often taught, and something that you find all throughout my writings, is the idea that. Creativity is an inherent human quality. 
It's not a talent reserved for a select elite, but it's an essential part of what makes us human beings, you know? And, um, you know, not everybody identifies themselves as an artist, but we all do have this creative component uh, as human beings. And I love how you talk about everything is sacred and how even the cooking utensils and even the ordinary mundane moments of life have this grace about them to draw out creativity from within us, you know, whether we identify as an artist or not. And so I'm curious if you could speak to how the Benedictine practices help to facilitate creativity even for those that wouldn't identify themselves as an artist or even in those mundane moments. Yeah, I guess for me, uh, I mean, certainly I believe that everybody is a creative being, just being created in the image of a creative God. But then sort of in the living of our daily lives, there's so many ways that we, for me, I guess creativity is in part about like what, what brings us most alive, as well as lifting up those moments of beauty that we see. And we do that all the time. Like we might be in, you know, a relationship with our family and maybe it's raising our children and doing that in a way where we're really trying to like lift, you know, lift up and bring out the sacred in them. I'm not a parent myself, but I have such awe for the tremendous creative act that comes just in raising children or things like relationships at work and the ways that we might interact with our coworkers and being able to sort of that, um, thinking of this, this practice that some of the sisters in our monastery used to do, which was called appreciative inquiry, which I always thought was this beautiful way of sort of bringing creativity in kind of the workplace. And sort of, it was a way of like affirming one another and sort of coming to dialogue and discussion with other people through the act of appreciating the kind of like lifting up the things that we really kind of see that shimmers in what the other person's saying. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of other things like the way we cook our meals and present them to gardening, to the ways we interact with our communities. You know, it's like the creative life is, is, you know, here <laughs> available to us. And I guess some people kind of fall into the trap of thinking, well, either thinking that it, they're not an artist or thinking, oh, I would be an artist if I only had like this big stretch of time, you know, <laughs> where I could create. And I think we all probably fall into that trap sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, I think it's actually a, a dangerous thing that we tell ourselves because, then we miss that the creative act is actually happening right in this moment. And it's par partially just the way that we see the world and the way that we lift up those moments that are of grace or the way we honor like the grief that's moving through and give it a, a channel or a way of, you know, being processed and all of those things are opportunities for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. I wanted to ask you about your chapter on humility because um, several things, you, your chapter's titled Humility, Embracing Your Imperfections and Limitations. And with the artists that I work with, I've often talked about how there's a difference between excellence and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, and I think that 
you know, excellence is kind of born out of humility or the desire for excellence is born out of humility, whereas perfectionism tends to be born out of fear or, you mm. know, these different things. So uh, tell me a little bit about your take on humility and how that informs the creative process. Yeah, well, humility is a really important principle or virtue for Benedict. He actually has a whole chapter in his rule about it. I think humility for our modern minds maybe sounds a bit oppressive or old-fashioned, um, but really it's, for me, it's about honoring, deeply honoring my my own limits and my own imperfections. And I love what, you, what you're saying about perfectionism, because I do think it's terribly destructive to the creative life and <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't really offer any fruit for us. And so there's something about, for me, about really honoring the struggles of human life as part of the like essential food for the creative process mm-hmm. that feels really important. And I know there's something in that chapter that I read about kind of blessing the the small selves, mm-hmm. you know, and I, what I talk about is like those little parts of ourselves that like the little fearful part or the anxious part or the, you know, the ones that feel really tender. And yet those are the parts that I think we're really called to like bring this compassionate love to, but it's like the creative arts tend to activate those parts really strongly Mm -hmm. because we are trying to put something out into the world and all of a sudden (laughs) we feel like this oh no like what if it's not perfect you know (laughs) and um yeah it's there's something there's so much grace in offering what we have knowing that it is limited knowing that it is imperfect Mm -hmm. to the world and yeah yeah i would think humility would be an essential ingredient to what you said about always remaining a beginner or an amateur. Yeah, exactly. And that humility keeps us in that place of perpetual curiosity and knowing there's always more, there's always a new perspective, there's always something we haven't uncovered yet, knowing that we've never arrived. And in this way, it would seem like humility is an essential ingredient to both the spiritual and the creative life. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that whole myth of arrival, um, again, can kind of really stall us on our own sort of spiritual deepening. Because uh, I think we, it's sort of like holding out for the big open space in our lives when we're going to be able to create. It's sort of like holding out for the arrival at whatever it is we think we're going to arrive at. Mm. Again, it's sort of like that anticipation of something to come rather than living into what's actually here and now. Christine, thank you so much for giving the time to talk with us on Makers and Mystics. Thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate it. It's been a delight. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you'd like more information on Christine's work, you can find that at the Abbey of the Arts, which we will link from makersandmystics.com and in the iTunes description of this episode. You can also find images and quotes from this and other episodes on our Instagram at Makers and Mystics. And if you haven't purchased your tickets for the 2018 The Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering, be sure to get those today at thebreathintheclay.com. There are only 500 seats available for this event, and they're on sale now at an early bird ticket price. Also, if you are a visual artist, a painter, photographer, or sculptor, You can submit your works for the gallery at thebreathintheclay.com as well. 
And if you'd like to receive additional content and help produce these podcast episodes, I encourage you to join our online community at patreon.com forward slash makers and mystics. And lastly, the music featured for this episode has been provided by my friend Latifa Alatis of Moda Spira. And you can find her music at makersandmystics.com also. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.